Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Philosophy is concerned with the truth. Sometimes we never get there due to the abstract nature of the concepts we study, but we still labor on joyfully. While deception has always existed at every level of human society, in modernity, we are entering an interesting and unknown territory. Deception is reaching a point where our five senses, and even our analytical thinking, have a hard time realizing when they're being fooled. Today, we're talking about deep fakes. Hmm. I appreciate the use that you let us go into this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this one... Um, we might we might even be jumping the gun a little bit because when you and I were talking um, earlier in the week about hey what are we gonna what are we gonna talk about this week one thing you brought up which I thought was sort of interesting was we've never talked about truth we've never done an episode on truth so at some point we probably should because if you think about big topics that's certainly one but yeah. um, we'll definitely address truth in this um, episode but mostly um, in contrast or relief, you know, as, as a, a negative image to um, this idea of deep fakes, which is a, a pretty modern term. Um, so why don't you tell us what is a, a deep fake? A deep, deep fake, at least as currently defined, as I understand it, is a manipulation of voice, image, or, or rather, uh, a generation of voice, image, representation of a person, but it's it's generated entirely by AI, whereas a shallow fake, or there are various terms for it, was when humans would Photoshop, use photo tools, and still do to to try to make you think something happened that didn't or manipulate audio waves. The deep fake is all AI. Hmm. And, and the AI, the algorithmic tools doing what the human is asking to do to change a photograph or, or put somebody's face on somebody else's body. They call it Frankensteining, uh, or, or putting a voice out that it that is not the person's voice but has been accrued because of selections of the person's voice so that can be made the person can be made to say anything yeah yeah so this is interesting because um it's really um riffing off of the conversation that you and i have had over the past several weeks about um ai yeah and there's really a direct sort of um correlation with um other ai processes you know we've talked about how the differences between AI and regular computing, which is where, all right, um, with regular computer programming, you have to set a lot of parameters. You have to code um, all the behaviors of a system into it. Whereas um, with AI, you're you're seeding just a couple parameters, and then it, the system itself is learning how to conduct tasks. Yeah. So if you just sort of bring that concept over into deep fakes, um. Yeah, a shallow fake, right, would be um, sort of analogous to programming, where okay, you have to you have to use Photoshop, you have to use all of these sensitive tools, and then it's the human in control of 
um, doing all the manipulation in order to try to fool something. Whereas and the human is able, and the human is able to, uh, a well-trained human is able to say, "Look, here are five indicators that that this is fake. That this boundary between the light around the speaker and the light in the background is wrong, or whatever it happens to mm. be." Which is almost impossible now. Yeah. And we're just at the edge of this a couple of years in. I mean, we're talking about less than five years, really. Yeah. One thing that was, um, was really shocking to me is, you know, like I, I wouldn't say I keep up on, on technology or artificial intelligence, but, you know, I, I think that I have a, a little bit of a better passing knowledge than maybe the average person. Hmm. And, um, you know, the last I was aware of, um, in order to deep fake something, um, you know, you had to, you could really only do it with famous people because you had to have enough video footage of them from enough angles, making enough facial expressions to, um, you know, for the AI to, to gather enough information. Or you had to have them say enough words that it could identify all the syllables, all the letters, all the things to, in order for it to generate a script. Um, one of the things that was shocking as I was doing the preparation for the interview today was, um, it said that there's, um, most AI systems now can generate a deep fake with five seconds of video. Yes. Now. Very brief. <clears throat> and that's now. Mm-hmm. Who knows six months from now? I mean, we're, t- we're talking in increments of months watching the evolution mm-hmm. of the, with you. Chat GPT was at the end of November released into being discussed with people. Now institutions are changing their policies because of it. I mean, we are at such a rapid and, and rapid change uh, does not often accommodate good reflective human thought because it's react, react, react. This is not a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. So do you know when the first deep fake was or sort of the, uh, you know, when it, uh, around five years ago, I'm trying to remember what the I, I've read of this. What what the initial one was? It wasn't. It, well, among the the first ones was an attempt to uh, have Donald Trump say. I mean, you know, all the things he said anyway. Why? Why would he <laughs> <laughs> have him say something that would that would provoke Ukraine or something like this? And, and they could look at. The, Still managed at that point to look at the lips. The lips weren't quite in sync. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think from what I was reading, the first deepfake was actually of Obama. They were trying to get him to. They were trying to yes. use a different, yes. yeah, different yeah. line of yeah. dialogue from what he was actually saying and see if they could match up his lips to the new dialogue. Before that, this wouldn't count as a deepfake, but I think that it's sort of like the historical origin of this idea. Um, was in 1997 with the video rewrite program, which was, that was probably the, the first shallow. That fake. was the shallow one. Yeah. That, that, and, and, and it doesn't need to be explored uh, in, in our conversation necessarily, but they're, they're, you know, the, infor- the interesting thing is you look, it's Obama or Trump or we're, we're talking about uh, Ukraine, world leadership kinds of issues, mm. world politic level things but also uh pornography and and the the ethical issues that all of that brings up a whole uh, separate discussion of the, who who owns ones i mean who, 
you know, endless possible topics with it. But the fact that we go toward the world changing level mm. or the culture changing level almost immediately. And then and apologists of all kinds of, well, yeah, but you know, this was just a game. This is just, just to get people to, to just to, to tweet people. And I, I, my first reaction to it is, no, this is not a game. It's far too, the, the implications are far too resonant for it just to be a game. But there are also possible uh, virtuous, <laughs> to, to riff off of your conversation with Iggy, or um, ethical uses for it. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into those in a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it is interesting. I mean, when you look at sort of the history of these things, um, you know, a, a lot of this technology originated in academic institutions, right? And it's, it makes <laughs> you wonder, um, I don't really know what the motivation was for the development of the technology initially. Um, but going back further than that, is, is there any historical precedence for this type of deception? If we go, if we go back farther in history, um, has, has, have there been cases historically where, um, you know, people have tried to, to substitute, um, other people in, in order to, to deceive people? Yes. Wartime back to, let's say when photography was, was in, was in its development. I mean, there are, there are situations or cases of these things happening in, in the Civil War. Hmm. Um, to try to mislead somebody that somebody was in a different location than they might be in. But we're talking about daguerreotype. You know, this is not, the word primitive doesn't work anymore. It's, it's, it's not a nice word, but it's certainly nascent. Uh, in the World War II, all kinds of trying to mislead people about where people were with evidentiary material. But when we get, so I, I think it's, it's associated with war or major manipulation for political purpose. Yeah. Which is funny because I mean, if you think about it, it's still being used in the same way. You know, it's, it's, it's manipulation of, of political leadership at the highest level is sort of been this. And when I think about it, I think all the way back to ancient Rome. I was watching a documentary where they said, um, you know, in Rome, they'd build these beautiful marble, marble statues of the emperor, hmm. but they'd always build them with the head as a separate piece from the body. <laughs> because. And so <laughs> with, once the Republic turned into an empire, um, not a lot of people know this, but I mean, the average length of an emperor's reign was like less than two years or mm -hmm. something. So these guys were constantly getting stabbed in the back, you know, murdered, people taken over for them. And so what they do is they just go around the city and pull these heads off and then drop the new head of the new emperor on. Think about it. I mean, that's that's a deep fake in a physical form. Right? <laughs> it, 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 it is. It's it's an attempt to change historical memory, and it's and it is Frankenstein-ing <laughs> way before Frankenstein was ever a concept. Yeah, because they said that you know it's very rare um, to find um, statues of of a lot of these emperors because um, full statues that didn't have the detachable head were so rare. Um, because, you know, first off, most of them had that detachable head, so you just put a different head on the body. But the ones that were whole, normally the new emperor would order them destroyed, you know? So, 
lots of times there's these these emperors, you know, somebody who, I mean, if you think about it, the highest political leader of the largest country in the world um, and the physical evidence of his reign is almost non-existent yeah. because of this human um, urge to rewrite history or sort of lead people astray in order to not, yeah, you know, for their own. the importance or if not to erase the importance. Yeah, it's, there's a really interesting, you probably read it, uh, dailyphilosophy.com is a wonderful site and and you can get all kinds of things of it. But there was one that partly was it got me to thinking about all this. It's called Deep Fakes, Deception, and Distrust, Epistemic and Social Concerns. Um, David Valena is the the writer. And some of the things he's he's talking about that, that we can get to when when uh, it seems appropriate, but where is the idea of different kinds of evidence that we have in the past, and up till the very recent past, these these situations with wartime and the Romans notwithstanding, we generally have trained ourselves to touch to to trust testimonial evidence, which is to say the written word, mm. uh, which is to say I was there, I saw this, uh, a journalistic writing. But we seem to be tipping toward, have been tipping towards since the development of the various video technologies, toward perceptual evidence. And, and the article was, was pointing out that uh, using a case of Prince William and, and a statement that Prince William is said to have made, Regarding uh, the Ukraine, uh, regarding the Ukraine, uh, this is an alien thing to the European continent. We, we expect it with Middle Eastern and African cultures. Well, it was, if indeed that was said, it was a horrific thing to have, said, to have been said. But it was reported, and then video emerged of very rough video of without seeing Prince William's head. It was a shaky kind of video that in which he's he said no such thing and so then there were a number of uh, retractions and apologies because the perceptual evidence overcame the testimonial evidence and this is something we this is new Hmm. In, in a, a very real sense it brings plato to mind who we've said before he was warning everybody about what what writing would do, the evils writing would do to <laughs> to human memory and, and so on and so forth, even though Plato wrote. But, <laughs> uh, but now we're at that place where, oh, we're not going to trust writing, we're going to trust what we see. At the same moment, that what we see is more subject to manipulation than ever. Yeah, yeah, and that's what, that's what I was alluding to in the intro, is that we're really reaching... Um, a very interesting point in human history because there is there's definitely a, a distrust of of the written word or you know journalistic reporting um and but this reliance on our on our five senses our ability to to see something or to hear something right um you know it's being able to be replicated 
you know, a deception is able to be replicated at at an increase, you know, an exponentially um, convincing rate. You know, like one of the things, one of the questions I had for this show that that ended up pulling was how are deep fakes made? After I stumbled across that that article that that I just talked about earlier, right? Because mm-hmm. I was going to talk about how, um, you know, again, scientists and researchers will feed images of somebody from different angles and you know their voice you know speaking different scripts and stuff doing that sort of thing and then then after that the computer you know the ai system will watch hours of video of the person and then they can make a deep fake it's not the case anymore as a matter of fact um when i was uh helping a a, a different guy set up a podcast recently you know i was searching uh some of the new options and um one of the places allowed just anybody to do um, voice cloning. So for a small fee, um, you read, I want to say it was a 60 sentence script. And um, then what what the podcast distributor would do for you is um, they would run ads on your podcast with you speaking a script that an advertiser wrote, but you didn't actually have to say it. The advertiser would would just use your voice right and they said you know this is an excellent tool um you can use it for uh producing audiobooks right if you've written a book um then after you write it rather than having to hire somebody to do voice work i know some people right right or rather than having to read rather than having to read it yourself you just read your 60 sentences and then put a plug it into the voice cloner and it will read the whole book for you in your voice, right? And this technology is available to anybody who pays a, a small fee, right? So honestly, we've reached the point where I don't understand how deep fakes are made anymore, right? I don't understand the process for, you know, in as little as five seconds being able to, you know, how the system yeah. is able to infer how somebody would look or speak or act in a, in a multitude of different scenarios. So the technology is is increasing at a an exponential rate, right? So, so yeah, our, our how how do we trust what we perceive? You know, and this has always been a philosophical question. This has always been a going back to Descartes. This is epistemic <laughs> perception. Yeah, we're, we're talking about and going back to Descartes and even further, <laughs> trusting your senses. Uh, the epistemic perception issue we we want to be able to say i trust what i see well you know we go to movies and we know certain things aren't happening and there's still the uncanny valley in some movies with the effects nonetheless we we suspend our disbelief but we're not talking about entertainment we're talking and and as as you just said uh, as i read each week about these exponentially developed developing developments in in ai i i had never heard of generative adversarial networks Hmm. and generative adversarial uh, networks are ai algorithmic uh, trained systems to find the flaws in deep fake but uh, the writer describes this as a cat and mouse game that's going on between two systems. But eventually the point is 
that the one system will be able to finally uh, learning from the generative adversarial network so that it can't even be discerned by other AI. Mm. And we're already at the place where that's, that's visible on the very near horizon. It's funny to me that that's, uh, it's like analogous to antibiotics mm. almost, right? Yeah. Like you, <laughs> you use this thing to fight an infection, but then the infection eventually learns how to evade it. And then you reach this point where the medicine, um, you know, it's almost as if the medicine uh, became the sickness in some way or, you know, en enabled the sickness in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what do we do? I mean, for me, I, I had to, I have to say that my, my, one of my concerns, and maybe I'm jumping the gun on the questions about this, uh, now that we're laying the groundwork for it is, is what does it mean for planetary communication? What, what does it mean for, and of course, I shouldn't say of course, but the first thing that comes to mind is that people will, be deceived and deceiving people is and experiencing deception is, is the worst thing but i've come to realize reading the articles that i've been reading in the past couple of weeks no probably not probably the worst thing is that that it's the distrust that is engendered what's worse than being fooled um, Having a rootedness of of cynicism and a rootedness of okay, I can't trust anything that I see. Hmm. So then they can stop fooling you at that point because we're back to Orwell. Yeah, how many, how many fingers am I holding up? And <laughs> if you don't say six or you don't say four, even if five fingers are being held up, then you're going to get punished. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, and we we talked about this. Uh, I think it was our last episode. Um, I think we talked briefly about consciousness right and how your your sensory perception um isn't holy but it, it's distinct from your conscious perception so your sense your senses receive information um and then up to 15 seconds later the scientists are finding um your consciousness integrates all the information and comes to a conclusion about something so you know, and with with that in mind, this idea of um, you know trusting your senses, in a way, we already don't because the sensory information um, doesn't lie to us, right? What we see, what we hear, what we smell, taste, touch—all of those things are um, objective to the extent that we are capable of perceiving them, right? We've talked about, we talk about all the time. Okay. We only see a sliver of the light spectrum or, or hear a little bit of the audio spectrum, but, but we hear what is happening in the world, but then what our consciousness, what all of the, the organic wiring in our brain does with those signals. And then what our prefrontal cortex tells us is going on. Um, that that is almost completely separate from the sensory experience itself right because there are there are many cases where people see something or hear something um and i mean you can think about any aspect of life whether you want to talk about um somebody with deep political um affiliations um seeing something that's obviously wrong or even a, a magician doing a trick mm -hmm. or something like yep. that, right? <clears throat> Whatever it is, 
um, the sensory information conflicts with, you know, uh, the, the cognitive output, how your brain takes all that sensory information and what it decides to do with it um, doesn't necessarily correlate with the sensory information itself. So there's, there's already um, this, this idea of, I don't, you don't necessarily even have to be a deeply cynical person to distrust your senses. You, and many of us, you know, due to our internal biases and things, are already distrusting our sensory information without even knowing or thinking that we're without doing any so. assistive technology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, are there any positive aspects to deep fakes? I have read of some, and I've and I've been reflecting on this. Um, some articles of what I mentioned before. Has pointed out, have pointed out things such as um, if one has lost one's voice and is trying to say something, perhaps in more extreme circumstances, people with aphasia who can't put words together, if there is a, a library of voice <laughs> that is able to maybe you can press some buttons and in uh, your voice can tell somebody something that you are capable of telling them. That's a possible use. Uh, a possible use would be able, as you were just talking about with reading circumstances, or, or we were um, talking with uh, your wife Amanda about this, where if someone is not confident and maybe if somebody something was being read to them, and a voice that they trust or find soothing or uh, inspirational, that they might be moved to read more or act more. There, there are all kinds of tutorial kinds of things, which is what I said about Chad GPT too. I think there are possibilities, educative possibilities. Um, there are the one that was mentioned that I'm not necessarily on board with entirely, I'm still thinking about it, is that you could take someone who has died and put fresh words into, make them animated in ways that you didn't see them, so this historical figure becomes alive. Well, I've seen some examples of this just with, with people who have passed on, but you have a still shot, and then you can make them sing. Mm-hmm. And I find that really, really troubling. I do too. I don't, I don't like, you it. know, I've, I've seen it and part of that's the uncanny valley, but part of it is no, my mom didn't sing this way. I don't want to have a card when get a card where she's singing to me. That's not part of the experience. No, nonetheless, you know, I just offhand, I think that there are possible educative uses for this, but I don't think they outweigh the, the, caution that we have to have. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that um, obviously any technology, um, you know, it, it's not a uh, ethically good or bad thing. It's a tool, and so it depends on how it's used by people. Yeah. I think that just the, the deepfake technology, um, at least at this point, is very much more destructive and harmful than it is positive. That being said, there are positive aspects to it. Uh, another one that I found was um, uh, protecting people's identities. Um, 
I think they were shooting a, a war documentary or a documentary about um, opposing um, political tyranny in order to protect the identities of the people. Um, they deep faked their faces. They gave them different faces, right? So they couldn't be identified. Okay. Well, that's a, that's that might be a, a pretty good use. There's probably other ways of doing that that would be just as effective. I, th- um, I think that it's and yes, those are. I think cautionary tales are deeply important. Deep fake, deeply important. Deep. Uh, but I find that it just enormously telling that the the studies of this so far have shown. That about 95, 96% of deep fake technologies used for pornographic purposes. So here we are, a planet full of people. We have this kind of technology. We have 5% of the, those who manipulate it wanting to either have fun or to make, do political manipulation. <laughs> and mm. the rest are engaging in uh, a frivolity that may not be considered a frivolity, whatever one wants to call it, that has nothing to do with human development. Yeah. And that what, what right. were typical out of the trees, out of the caves. Oh, let's. <laughs> yeah. And that's why, that's why I was sort of interested because I'm, I mean, that statistic is, is shocking, right? It is. And so to think that, like I was saying at the beginning, this technology developed in universities. So what was the intended use of it to begin with, right? I mean, I find it hard to believe that. You know, you could get a, a research grant for that sort of thing. No. <laughs> um, I think that you know, but is it is it likely that maybe the government was behind the scenes trying to develop it? You know what? What was the purpose of it to to begin with? You know, I, I, but, I don't find it necessarily nefarious purpose. I'm back to that little, little side note for discussion that I was having last night again about the science fiction anthology, and there was a couple of stories about technology. One of which uh, you could choose a memory to erase and would you do it and 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 things tangentially related to this research is research there you you do research to see well what can we do hmm. what you know when 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 adobe um what is the thing it developed voco i think is the the program to do to do vocal shopping the way video or image and then security services are approaching them and saying, you know, there are lots of, we need to think about this. I don't think that initially, necessarily, people are saying, oh, what nefarious purposes can we put this to? Just what can we do? Yeah. That's what humans do. What can I do with these two stones? Let's see. What, what yeah. can I do with this algorithm? Now that we've, it's, oh, <laughs> how we end up using it is, sociologically very revealing, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily, I don't think there's necessarily a point. Right. Yeah, no, I think that you're right. I think that a lot of, a lot of basic research, um, is done, like you said, to find, to figure out what you can do with tools rather than ever actually seeing what the end result of them are. And I think history reflects that. Um, I also think about our, our conversation that we had last week talking about science fiction and how, um, you know, how technology is influenced by science fiction, but it's not predictive of it. And, you know, I think that the uses of deepfake technology, like you said, primarily for pornography and for political um, manipulation, rather than it, rather than 1984 or A Brave New World predicting the future, um, you see elements of both of them um, developing through 
the technology, right? And and the two books, although talking about dystopian futures, are really very different versions yeah. of dystopian futures. Yeah. And it looks very much like our future, rather than explicitly following one or the other path, is very likely yeah, to be some amalgamation <laughs> of it, right? Because, um, yeah. I, you know, I think that sometimes science fiction sees they take those things to the extremes because that's what makes it a good story um but i think human nature is to to make the widest use of of something any 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 what we found with technology and tools right is if you can make a use of it you will, you will. and so it'll, it spans the spectrum yeah. of capabilities yeah um uh, and do you think we've covered all of the the ethical issues with with deep fakes what 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 are some of the so we have fraud, we have authenticity concerns. Um, and we have, yeah, we have just the, the, the deceptions that could be used for any, yeah, I think when you say fraud, then we could fit thievery, crimes of all kinds uh, mm-hmm. underneath that, political manipulation. And then there's a whole separate discussion we can have sometime about whether manipulation can be ideologically or ethically supported or not. But, yeah. Uh, but that, but this can lead to that because it, the, there's the manipulative. There's the deceptive. There's the uh, criminality possibilities. There's the educative possibilities. So I, I think in broad strokes, probably we. Yeah, I think, and um, you know, I, we talked about this with um, Chat GPT uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, the, the security concerns, right? Hey, mm-hmm. this thing can write code that can hack stuff. That can, you know, it can create viruses. Can do these things. Um, I was reading um an article right before we start about Dali and how um, artists are saying, Hey, you know, I, I never gave anybody permission to feed this thing, my artwork to make this, you know, to put this in its algorithm. That's an interesting part of this, right? Because I think that with deep fakes, it's very obvious, right? If you are a celebrity, um, you obviously don't want your face Photoshopped onto a pornographic actor's body. And it seems pretty obvious that there's there's a consent thing involved there right hey yeah. that's my image i don't want you putting that there with dali or with chad gpt right that's a little bit more subtle because we don't think of the artists the painters or you know the the the, the writers of these books or no. these things we don't think of them as necessarily needing to give consent for these programs to go in and consume all of their knowledge and then spit it out no we do you don't. think that they do need it well, I think that we've... Because we've talked... Because here's the interesting part, right? When yeah. we talked about AI being creative, we said they're essentially doing what people do, right? Yes. Um, and I mentioned it last... When we were talking about it last, I said, yeah, I'll hear a cool part of a song and I'll ask Chad GPT what happened and it will tell me. Yeah. And then later on, I'll use that same technique um, in one of my songs. I'm not copying it exactly. You know, it's not, it's not in any way, you know, it, and definitely based on historical court cases... I could in no way be prosecuted as, as plagiarizing somebody else's work. Right. The fact of the matter is, you have a very limited number of notes in a scale, in chords, and and sorts of things. So your combinations and and how you uh, melodically over over harmonic structure can create things is very limited. Yes. You know, but <clears throat> and with painting, right? Oh, okay. Well, you know, everybody paints landscapes. You know, so who's to say you know that if 60,000 people paint the same winter landscape, you know, that there aren't going to be some that very closely resemble other ones. Well, did, did the artist who painted this painting 
um, look at 12 other artists' paintings of winter landscapes and then paint his own? Most likely, yes. That's right. What one is, allows oneself seeks to be influenced by by others. Yeah. So, what's the differentiation between a human doing this, taking, um, you know, observing um, various art or various literature or whatever, and then um, amalgamating or creating something new out of it, and AI doing it? Okay. Two or three thoughts. First. I think that we have to acknowledge that probably we foolishly, in the collective sense, how many of us have clicked the button that said, uh, this app has access to your videos and mm-hmm. photos? Yeah. I, I more consciously now don't, and often that I can't use a certain app that does that, but I, I've done it because I want to get to using the app or whatever it is. And so in some sense, we have inadvertently given access to things that we wouldn't have thought were actually going to be used. Not universally, but I think that's, that, that has to be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. From a legal point of view, some of us have probably done that without thinking, um, <clears throat> which doesn't justify our decisions, but it happens. I think that, that it's possible, as I said before, for a if AI becomes defined as an alternate life form and it generates what it is calling art, that we can acknowledge that it is art from an AI viewpoint and also say, but it's not art in a human sense. I I think we're trying to apply the same cloak to, or the same umbrella to, to both things. If we, we, we find that whales sing. We're learning more and more about what those, what those actually may be stories that are being told. A whale story, whatever it is, is unlikely to be a human story. And so you can have, let's say we extrapolate ahead to a, a fairly new, uh, far away future where we, okay, they're whale stories. Are they equally human stories? Why is that relevant? We don't need to do this. We've, mm. we've, we've done too much harm doing this imperialistic, I'm better than you. And so it's an alternate form. Dali would be an alternate form if it were the AI choosing to do art. But when it's a human telling the AI, well, go out and do this, the human skill uh, the development of skill, the development of, of craft, the, the thought that one might be putting into it, I think is arguably not present. And therefore, it doesn't equate to human art. Because, uh, so what am I essentially saying? Sweat and blood? Well, sort of, but, but more that uh, uh, from intention. And I don't think that one can argue yet that AI of its own, decided to create art. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, um, you know, I think that uh, sort of the point of what you're saying goes back to the the discussion I just had with Iggy Perillo talking about, um, you know, we have this Cartesian split reductionist view of of reality, right? Where we would like to say we want to sort of reduce things down and be able to say this or that, right? So, and, and I, it doesn't really work that way, right? AI creates art. Um, people create art. 
Um, and there's different processes that go in, but the output is this pictorial thing or this line of dialogue or something. Yeah. And um, I think that how it's generated is, Im- is important. Um, but I think that, that that's a real can of worms in, in trying to say, um, you know, is and that part of it is, is difficult. The part of it I'd, I'd like to focus on is, do you think that the, um, the people who have developed these AI have infringed on the right of artists or writers or other people in using, um, their, their paintings or their books in order to, to generate this AI's knowledge base? I, I don't think it's infringing if it's material that is in the public domain or if it's uh, material that any human could read or go to a museum and see. I think it's infringing when it, if and when it is uh, plucked from people's personal files or caches of images or whatever it might be. Because those weren't intended for a, hmm. a, a wide viewing. That, that for me is really the line. And I know it's a very small, seemingly small line, but yeah, it, we, we all, well, many most know the, what the Mona Lisa is. If never having seen the original, have seen endless, how many advertisers have used the Mona Lisa in various ways, cartoons and otherwise. So if we suddenly say, yeah, but when AI does it, it's, it's wrong. I, I, I think that that's a, that's a non-starter for me. Yeah. It's a sticky subject, right? Because I, going back to, um, well, I, you know, the most, the easiest, um, case as, as an example is like celebrity pornography, right? The, the celebrities who are having this done to them, it's not the same as, what happened a few years ago where um, they had um, n- nude photos leaked from their iCloud accounts, right? right? It's not like a hacker went in and stole something that was secret. What happened is in, in the deep fake cases, they're just public figures. So their faces are all over movies, right? right? So you can just take their faces from movies, which are public things, and then put them in a compromising position that they were never intended for. Yeah. This could happen to you and I, Right, there could be somebody that listens to our podcast, clones our voices, and then makes us spew Nazi propaganda or something. Right, right. right. That's totally possible. So, and our podcast is free, open to the public, that yeah. sort of thing. So, you know, so this is those things are public, but they're not intended for the purposes that the AI deepfakes are using. I, you know, how do we how do uh, we address those? Uh, uh, how, because we don't well. It, an extreme, an extremist view, but we could all shut down. We could stop talking in public. Hmm. Well, that would be a fast track to fascism. That would be just <laughs> not productive hmm. in any, any sense that I can think of. Um, but we also have this human hope that is not entirely unsupported that most of us aren't going to be doing this. Uh, statistically, at least, and that there are always going to be bad actors who will misuse whatever technology is available. We've certainly seen that all the way up to the nuclear level. Um, so I, I don't, it is a can of worms, and I don't think 
that the first always knee-jerk human reaction of, oh, we just shut it down, turn it off, is is going to happen because once we've made something, we've made it. It never mm-hmm. goes away. So I think the, the not just being aware of it, but trying to make the make the decisions about what one is saying and whether one is still continuing to want to be speaking in public or to want to to draw, uh, to want to create, and will do so despite those possibilities. It's not ignoring it. It's just saying, well, you know, on balance. Yeah, I totally realize that this could happen. I also would like to believe that for many people, there would be a discernment made, but but there might not be. There there was a pretty vile thing. Well, Lyndon Baines Johnson said many, many vile things, but one of the things that he was he was good at was misdirecting people into trying to call call into question whether somebody had done something by. Uh, making just the vaguest of uh, suggestion, and and he had an advisor, uh, advisor say, "Well, you can't say that in public. Well, I'm not saying it in public. I'm just saying, but what if he did? Hmm. That person did this, and 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 then the other person gets ev- eventually put into the position of of illocutionary. Um, uh, what's the term? Illocutionary." Um, I've forgotten the term, but it's illocutionary something, and it's and it essentially means having being forced to say something you didn't intend to say, hmm. and having to defend yourself that you never said it, and that that can sidetrack entire lives. That can do enormous damage to individuals. It certainly, can do political damage, um, and it it was used long before deepfakes were a thing. Yeah, it reminds me of sort of the solipsism's uh, distortion of Socratic questioning, right? You know, there's there's a difference between probing for something, and then there's a difference between um, sort of starting out with a goal in mind and not caring if it's true, but using um, discourse argument to try to, to, you know, prove a point that doesn't exist, you know? Um, do you think that this this technology will facilitate a pendulum swing back towards trusting some journalistic sources um for instance like you know like i just talked about i i'm really nervous that i use the words nazi on the podcast now and in the context of somebody <laughs> stealing our voices right <laughs> you know well there's there's a term that they have me saying so they can use it right? oh, so but let, let's use continue with the example because we're already we're already <laughs> we're already in trouble if they those nazis i hate those guys yeah well, so yeah. we're already in trouble right. if somebody decides to do it right so let's say somebody decides to um use our voices to say something that we would never say. Um, Do you think that at some point in the future, people will say, you know what? Okay, there's an initial shock. But then they'd say, well, if we go back and listen to the podcast, that seems antithetical to anything they believe. Or maybe even there's an AI tool that's developed that listens to all of our podcasts instantaneously and then provides like a percentage score of how likely it is that we said the thing that we said. Do you think that there will be some sort of pendulum swing in the future that will um, mitigate some of these instances of of deep fakes? So take us back to testimonial evidence. Yeah. uh, Rather than um, perceptual evidence. Oh gosh, I'd like to think so, but I looking at where our 
the newspapers that continue to evaporate and be uh, subsumed by larger corporate entities and the, and the journalistic tendencies and the, and the reduction of the writerly workforce. I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I, I think, I think that once we're into the catastrophic mode of the, the, in, um, the undeniable catastrophic mode of, of climate change, uh, which is already presenting itself in so many ways. I think that no matter what anybody says, when the temperatures are what they've never been before and, and all the other deadly things are happening, that eventually, even then, perceptual evidence is going to outweigh the people won't, won't go back and say, oh, well, people have been trying to tell us this for decades. They won't pay attention to that. They'll pay attention to, yeah, mm. um, it's it's happening right now and I don't have enough water. <sighs> so I'm not, I'm not optimistic about that, but I don't think journalism is going away. I think enough of us still need it and trust it that it will continue. I'm not sure if it will return full force. Yeah, and, and I mean, even if it, does um you know the market for it is <laughs> as low as it is and they've come out with um i forget what news outlet it was um but one of them was found to be using ai to write articles mm-hmm. using chat gpt actually to write to write its articles um and it's known that chat gpt is not always accurate of course not because <laughs> it's programmed as we've talked about before because it's programmed by human beings it's- Algorithmically, the, the information that it's consuming, it could be consuming information that is false, and then sort of regurgitating that or, or synthesizing it with other information, or enhancing it. And yeah, I was reading an article right, right before the show. Actually, it was talking about um, how if you if you ask Chat GPT um, ethical questions, it will give you. Um, unethical answers. And I said, it's not a virtuous program. I go, hey, virtue. Virtue. There I you said, are. that's a word I haven't heard in the public discourse in a long time that we just, that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the issues are, are all there. You know, it's, it's really has reached a, a, almost a critical mass in some ways. I think we're, we're not very far from it. You know? uh, I don't, I, I, I agree. We, we aren't and we're having to deal with it. I just think that the, knee-jerk human reaction as we're seeing it and having been in the college system for so long there are there are educative possibilities for all of this uh, there are are ways of of taking something taking a deep fake and and showing uh, people what it was generated from perhaps or to say well Clearly, we're misleading ourselves if we think we can even discern. So if we're past the point of being able to discern epistemically, uh, epistemic perceptual is denied uh, by the technology, then we are left with logic, uh, reputation, as Shakespeare would talk about, um, uh, concatenated experience of uh, an individual or group, uh, or as you say, Going back through at rapid pace, pulling together everything that somebody has said is, is this likely? Hmm. Well, we're essentially being put in the role of, of having to be detectives, and I love a good detective. Hmm. 
fiction, right? But uh, to be more careful than ever about why we think that might, why do we want to believe that piece that is being presented visually? Is it because it justifies a belief? This is the epistemic again. Does it justify belief? Does it run counter to belief and challenge belief? And challenge is good if it comes from the proper motivations and a virtuous anchor. Um, so I, I don't, I, yeah, it's here. We are having to deal with it, but to just wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, the first thing you do is build up walls, put in a syllabi and say, um, there are even more punishments now for you. Uh, we're redefining what the word plagiarism means in the case of chat GPT. I understand that response, but that's not going to lead to any, any dialogue of, of worth. It's not going to lead to, but what's happening with students and how might this be useful to students and how do we need to adjust as teachers to first say, no, you shouldn't be writing your essays and turning them in and saying that the, your, the AI's work is yours. But I think a lot of people know that anyway. So why are we, why is it being done? What are the situations that are causing it to be done? Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, there's no, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. So we better be very careful with our wishes. Right? <laughs> so until next time. Keep it